welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of P, G and W and the Secretary of State for the Home Department. The citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 3. And this case returns us to a topic that has increasingly come up in a number of court cases in recent years, which is usually a sign that attitudes are changing on the subject. Thankfully, as a result of this case, we may soon see the law change in a way for the better. We're talking about criminal record disclosures in cases of only very mild offending, often when the individual is very young, yet the penalty can follow them around for the rest of their lives. For most people, this isn't an issue, but if you want to work with children or vulnerable adults, then you will be subject to an enhanced criminal record check that will bring things up even if the punishment handed out is spent for the purposes of relevant rehabilitation legislation. On the surface, this seems fair because, after all, who doesn't want to make sure that those who are most vulnerable in our society are protected to the best of our ability? But as we go through some of the stories from this case, you may soon get a sense of the inequity that's going on here. Let's start with Lorraine Gallagher, who in the mid-1990s was convicted of a number of offences associated with herself and children not wearing seatbelts. Fast forward nearly 20 years, Gallagher had qualified as a social worker and applied for a permanent position working at a day centre for adults who have learning disabilities. Everything was going well until the Enhanced Criminal Records Certificate turned up these convictions, at which point the job offer was withdrawn. All of the stories follow this similar pattern. In 1999, P was 28, homeless, and had undiagnosed schizophrenia. She was cautioned after stealing a sandwich and then was convicted for stealing a book that cost 99p. She failed to surrender to the bail, granted in respect of that offence, and received a conditional discharge. She has since turned her life around, has her schizophrenia under control, and is trained as a teaching assistant, but unfortunately has not been able to get a job. It is her belief that the reason for this is because of her past criminal convictions that she has now put behind her. W's circumstances go back even further to 1982, when he was still in school and was involved in a fight on the way home. For this, he received a conviction for assault occasioning actual bodily harm and got a conditional discharge. Now that he has trained as an English teacher for adults, he believes that his job prospects will be negatively impacted by the need to obtain a criminal record certificate. Finally, G was arrested for sexual offences against two younger boys when he was only 13 years old, although there was an important mitigation here because the activity was consensual and was more a form of sexual curiosity that derived from a series of dares between the young boys. It was decided that there was no public interest in pursuing a conviction, but G did receive two police reprimands. By the age of 18, he was working in a local college as a library assistant, but was required to apply for an enhanced criminal record check. Although the police said that they would account for the mitigation as part of the disclosure, G decided to withdraw the application and subsequently lost his job. The legal basis for all of these cases was Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which protects the right to a private and family life. In the Court of Appeal, the relevant statutory schemes were held to be incompatible with this right, and so the government took the case to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. 
For the justices, and indeed for anyone else who is looking at a human rights case relating to Article 8, there are two tests that need to be applied, the legality test and the proportionality test. Calling that first test the legality test makes it sound like we are asking whether a particular action is legal or illegal, but that is not quite right. Instead, once the right to a private and family life is engaged, we need to know whether any interference is in accordance with the law. In other words, is there a legal basis for the action taken by the government? At this point, we could dive into the legislation, but there is not any great benefit in digging too deep for the purposes of this episode, as we are not especially concerned about any specific linguistic interpretation of the law. Instead, we only need to be aware that there are two core systems within the UK which have slight variants for Northern Ireland. These are the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act 1974, that deals with disclosures that have been made by the ex-offenders themselves, and the Police Act 1997 that governs the Disclosure and Barring Service, and more specifically, the issuing of criminal record certificates. For the Court of Appeal, these did not pass the legality test because there were simply far too many categories within the legislation. It seems that the Supreme Court found that judgment to be not quite on the mark and something of a misrepresentation of what the legality test is. Lord Sumption held in the end that this is really just about whether a legal provision is accessible and, in terms of foreseeability, doesn't give the government authority completely free reign to do whatever it likes. Whereas the lower courts interpreted the previous 2014 decision of the Crown on the Application of T and Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police as allowing for a breach of the legality test even where a piece of legislation is precise and offers no discretion to the government authority, Sumption clearly stated that this was not the effect of that decision. Furthermore, both of the schemes under scrutiny here, the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act 1974, and the Police Act 1997 are both sufficiently prescriptive while offering no significant discretion, and therefore they pass the legality test. Of course, there is also the second test of proportionality to consider, and this offers the court more room for analysis of the Article 8 issues. For a start, it needs to be decided whether or not disclosures of past criminal convictions can be based on predefined categories that exist within the legislation, this in itself can be justified for a number of reasons, such as the fact that it is ultimately up to the employer whether or not a specific conviction is relevant, and any evidence that they are prejudiced in this regard is very limited. Furthermore, such a category-based approach is the most effective way of aligning the two schemes, and is ultimately far more practical than any attempts to try and make individual assessments in each and every case based on specific circumstances. Moving on, it is then necessary to work out whether the categories that are used in the schemes are too broad, and this really goes to the crux of the criticism from the lower courts. For the most part, the justices of the Supreme Court found that the categories were proportional and in accordance with the Article 8 test, but this was subject to two very important exceptions that are at the heart of this decision. The first exception is the blanket rule in relation to multiple convictions. For people like Lorraine Gallagher and the respondent P in this case, a disclosure based on multiple convictions is not proportional because it fails to take into account relevant factors such as the type of offences that have been committed, 
how many times a person offended in total, the time that has since elapsed in the meantime, and how related the offences are to each other. The ostensible aim of the categorisation from the government's point of view is to try and indicate to future employers a propensity towards offending by potential candidates, but while that may be a legitimate aim, the broad-brush approach of the current legislation is not an effective means of achieving that. The second exception is in relation to warnings and reprimands given to young offenders, such as G in the case before us today. Again, the Supreme Court found that there to be a disparity between the apparent goal of the categorisation and the substantive effect. What I mean by this is that while those warnings and reprimands are technically punishments, they do also seek to correct bad behaviour at an early age so that the young person can grow up and become a productive member of society. This is in complete contrast with the actual effect of those punishments, under the two schemes that do not allow a such a person to ever put the past behind them. Once again, therefore, we see how the legal provisions are to be regarded as disproportionate for the purposes of Article 8. In the end, then, the cases of Gallagher, P and G all fall within the exceptions and are successful, but W, who, although he was a young offender, was convicted of the more serious offence of assault occasioning actual bodily harm, fell within the proportionate framework of the law, and so he failed in his bid. As a starting point in our analysis, it will be useful to look at the minority judgement of Lord Kerr, who actually wanted to go much further than the majority, and find that the two schemes did not meet either the legality or the proportionality tests. For him, the main problems with the system, at least prior to certain amendments made in 2014, were that there were not any proper safeguards that could be used to offer a proper assessment of proportionality, and in a related point there was not any mechanism that could be used for independent review. Even under the present scheme there is great potential for disproportionality, and for him that alone would be enough to fail both the legality and proportionality test in respect of Article 8. You can certainly see where Lord Kerr is coming from with this argument, and there is a great deal of frustration with the current scheme for criminal record disclosures, but I think he probably does go too far in the end with his critique. For a start, it is heavily focused on the outcomes of individual cases, but that is not a fair or realistic means of assessing the legislation. As Lord Sumption noted in his judgement, the use of categories may not exactly be perfect, but it is a practical solution to the problem. Criticising the system for not offering neat and measurable outcomes is asking too much and reveals a tendency to put the cart before the horse. Furthermore, the approach to legality that Lord Kerr comes up with himself does not need covering in detail, but is suffice to say that it is rather overcomplicated and goes beyond the jurisprudence of Article 8 within the context of the European Convention on Human Rights. On the other hand, this is not a complete advocation of the majority judgement either, which, in contrast, probably does not go far enough. There are endemic issues with the disclosure schemes as they currently stand, but Lord Sumption only really scratches the surface with the two exceptions that he finds. For many, this case will be considered a great victory, and it should not be underestimated, but even if the government does now go back and amend the offending parts of the law, there will still be a great number of people whose employment prospects are impacted by old offences that they should have been able to leave behind them a long time ago.
In truth, there probably is not a perfect solution, and part of it will have to be to do with educating employers about the importance of rehabilitation and taking an objective approach, but it is by no means impossible to devise a system that considers some of the factors that we mentioned earlier, such as the type of offence and when it was committed, etc. This declaration of incompatibility is an opportunity for the government to take a broader look at the law as it stands and make more sweeping reforms beyond those needed to address this specific issue. Protecting the most vulnerable must remain the overarching goal, but there is no need for that to come at the complete exclusion of those who have been rehabilitated under the criminal justice system. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. A couple of extra reviews on iTunes this week, one from Edinburgh Sam and one from Gwood1991. Thank you to both of you for your um, reviews and also your very kind words within the comments of that. Uh, very much appreciated. I think we're up to about 97 reviews on iTunes now, so I'm trying to crack that 100 mark and then I promise I will stop pestering you. So if that's not incentive enough, I don't know what is. All right, I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!